It's great to be able to hear God's Word again. Great to be serving with Justin. I served with Justin last Sunday at Bethany Bible Church in Phoenix, Arizona, my home church, and uh, here he showed up here again. Uh, he just keeps following me everywhere, so it's good to be able to serve together. It's, it's interesting. I grew up at Bethany Bible Church, was there probably about 1955 when my folks started and I was a little guy, about four years old. And the thing I wanted to point out for all of our edification is afterwards uh, you get done preaching, you stand, stood there, and there's this little line of people that kind of remembered me from the good old days, as they might refer to them, but they weren't any gooder than they are today. But uh, nevertheless, people would stand in line. I was always amazed in each of those lines, how many people would come up, oh, I remember you, oh, I remember you, and they would say, do you remember me? And, oh, I hate that question, because often I think, I think that I should know you, but I'm sorry that I don't. Uh, oh, yeah, that's right, now I remember. Uh, and, and so time and again, of folks that have been there all this time, and here is what struck me. One, one conversation sort of summed up the whole thing. Uh, there was this uh, woman that had been there since the early days when my dad was there, and, and I think I might have been around there just be getting, getting ready to leave. Uh, to go away to college, and uh, I said, well, it's so great that you're still here at Bethany Bible Church. So wonderful that you've been faithful all these years. And she said, of course, because Bethany, like Calvary, has been through its highs and its lows. And she said, of course I'm still here. Bethany is my church family. Where else would I go? I love, I love that attitude that we don't leave our personal families because we don't like something about someone in our family. We're connected. We're committed. And I love the church family that serves together. And so many of you have been those faithful people like the folks that I recalled from that little visit with them as well. The church should be this unique entity of people that are uniquely different. Ecclesia is the church. Greek word for ecclesia means literally to call out. We are called out of the world to be different than the world. And we saw tragically this last, yesterday I guess it was, white nationalists who are trying to stir up trouble and the friction of, of racism that you think, by now, Lord, shouldn't we have learned better? And the horrendous tragedy of a guy that drives his car into those who are protesting the protesters of white nationalism. The evil of racism and the evil of people who would do such things is just so hard for us to comprehend. And our hearts and our prayers should go on behalf of those who have lost a loved one or have been so terribly injured. And just the trauma of all that, you think, surely, Lord, we would learn more by now. And I see that, and I see how we should, in contrast to that, be such a different group of people, so different that we look at the world the way God looks at the world, and we see different people. And I appreciated Christina's comment. We look at the Iranian people, and we look at through the prism of politics, we might think one thing. But if we look through the prism of heaven, of God's look upon the people of this world, we should see them the way God sees them, people that are in need and need Jesus Christ. And that leads me to the passage this morning in Galatians chapter 6, in Galatians 6, you have an outline that you're going to find very helpful because we're going to look at the meat of the Word and we're going to chew up some of that meat and we're going to try to digest that meat because there's a lot here in this passage. But in Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 through 10, I want us to talk about the signs of walking in the Spirit. Signs of walking in the Spirit. 
In Galatians chapter 5 that you would have remembered hopefully from last week, it says in verse 25, if we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Then chapter 6 tells us how to do that. When Paul wrote this, it was one long letter. There wasn't a chapter division there. There weren't verse divisions. And so when he sets up, if we live by the Spirit, we are also to walk by the Spirit. It means you walk. You you do something. Your, Your behavior is different. And then in Galatians 6, he gives us specific ways to walk, signs that you're really walking in the Spirit of God. So I want us to review. I'm going to... I try to summarize into four areas, four areas of how the Spirit of God should lead us. And we will see what those four areas, when you're walking in the Spirit of God, it should look this way. And number one is that when you're walking in the Spirit, you are in the process of restoring people that are broken. Galatians chapter 6, let me read verse 1. Brethren, even if a man is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual... Restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, looking to yourself, lest you too be tempted. Walking in the Spirit means you live a restorative life. You're being restored, I'm being restored, but we're restoring others. And let me just break down this verse in this way, just to kind of get it into bite-sized bits, if you will. Who are those? Those who are caught, the word caught there that Paul uses actually means to be caught by, where sin is catching people. Those who are caught by that sin are now being brought into a hopefully restorative process. And the word that he uses for sin there is a term that means to miss a step. Uh, some, about a year or so ago, I had a little uh, motorcycle mishap. And uh, it's because uh, two guys were riding in front of me, and I didn't know that they had slowed down. And I didn't know that they were slowing down because I was looking at this sign on a restaurant at the top of Ortega Highway called Hell's Kitchen. You ever been to Hell's Kitchen? Uh, Okay, one, thanks. Two, three, Uh, do I see another hand? Four? You guys, you're, you're radical people. I didn't know that you go to places like Hell's Kitchen. It's just a hamburger place. And uh, so uh, often in front of Hell's Kitchen, there's a sign. In those days, Obama was president, and it's usually something pretty negative, uh, critical about him. So I'm reading the, the sign of the day. And so my eye was here, and the people in front of me were here, and I split right through them and crashed my motorcycle. And so it went down. That's what you call a trespass. Literally, the word is to miss your step because you are looking in the wrong direction and you didn't see the obstacle that is in your way. And when Paul the apostle says, who are those to be caught? Those who have had a misstep. Now, the thing I like about sin is what it says in Numbers chapter 32. It says, you have sinned against the Lord and be sure your sin will find you out. I could tell you miraculous stories of my days here at Calvary Church where God has miraculously revealed the sins of people. This isn't to put the fear of God in anybody, but there is a sense that God sometimes likes to reveal those who are in positions of responsibility and leadership and to bring to the light of day the sin that will find them out. And God does that. 
And so we keep on telling people, if you keep on sinning, somewhere it's going to catch you. It will always catch you. You will pay a price for it, but it's better to admit it first rather than letting sin catch you. You'd hate to have sin catch you. Here's what I read from John MacArthur that he heard from a pastor about being caught by the problem of sin. John MacArthur quoted another pastor who said this, I have often thought that if I ever fall into this sin, this trespass, I will pray that I don't fall into the hands of those censorious, critical judges in the church. Let me fall into the hands of barkeepers, street walkers, or dope peddlers, because such church people would tear me apart with their long, wagging, gossipy tongues, cutting me to shreds. Now, that's not very nice, is it? But there is sometimes an image that we can be the cruelest people to those that have been caught and found out by their sin. So, I'd like for us to break it down and show you the better way to do that, that we don't do that here at Calvary Church. And so what do we want to do? We want to restore them. The word restore there is actually a term that could be used for um, putting a joint back into place. If you take your shoulder out of place, it puts it back into place. The word restore there is to take a broken bone and to mend it. So what Paul is saying is, I want to take those who are out of place and put them in place. I want to take those who are broken, and I want to heal them and mend them together. And how do you do that? Well, you do it through spiritually mature gentleness while guarding your own heart because of temptation. And that's what Paul is talking about here. In a spirit of gentleness, looking to yourselves, lest you too be tempted. And here is the practicality of God's Word. This is how God tells us to do it. 1 Thessalonians 5.14 says this, we urge you, brethren, I'm sorry, I, I, I'll, I'll admit my problem. I've got, I did something, I was riding my bicycle this last week, and I ride it a lot, and I did something, and I tweaked my back, and now it's just killing me. So uh, I have to sit down every so often and try to take the load off. When you're obese, it's a, hard, it's a lot for your back to have to carry. So I'm trying to ease the ease the pain, and uh, not look too distracted by the pain of my back. All that being said, is anybody a chiropractor out there? <laughs> Ooh. All right. We urge you, brethren, admonish, uh, we've talked about this verse, admonish the unruly, encourage the fainthearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. I list it this way. Admonish the unruly, encourage the fainthearted, help the weak, be patient with all. And as I've said before, and you've heard others teach it as well, the word admonish is a Greek word that literally means to put into the mind of someone. Put it in their minds. Who? Those who are unruly, those who don't live by the law. Encourage the fainthearted. The word encourage means to parakaleo, come alongside the fainthearted. Literally, the word fainthearted in the Greek is to be small Sold. My soul feels small, depressed. Help the weak. The word help there literally means to cling to those who are weak. But be patient with all. Now, here's the beauty of not coming across too harsh when you want to restore someone. The problem that sometimes can happen is that we think one size fits all. So we just admonish the unruly. We admonish the fainthearted. We admonish the weak. And if you treat everybody like they're a nail, 
and you're the hammer, you're not going to restore anybody. So Paul, in his own practical way, the Spirit of God comes upon him, you better make sure that if they're unruly, you admonish them, but if they're faint-hearted, you better make sure you come alongside and walk with them, care for them. And if they're weak, spiritually weak, physically weak, emotionally weak, you cling to them. You don't admonish the weak. You don't, don't encourage the unruly. They'll just keep on being unruly. Let me illustrate. We have a family that we've known over the years who have been close friends of ours in another place of ministry. And I remember early on, um, as we got to know them, uh, he came and, and uh, revealed that their teenage daughter was pregnant. And so she's like 16, and uh, it just, it's just devastating to them. Why would she do this? How did this happen? So forth. And so we, we tried to walk with them. And I remember him saying that, boy, why does it have to hurt so bad? So you have this devastating thing in your family. You think, how am I going to manage that? So with this, uh, I'll call him Don. So as Don revealed this problem to us, he was fainthearted because he was overcome by this daughter that has, you know, done this terrible sinful things and now pregnant. What are they going to do? Get married? What are, so I had to kind of navigate all that with him. And so because she was faint-hearted, because he was faint-hearted, small-souled, we encouraged him. We walked alongside he and his wife. And so that's what you do. You, you find this, this brokenness, this trespass has occurred, but you come alongside the family and you encourage them. Well, some years after that, then it came to light. And again, I'm telling you, sin always finds out people. So it came to light then that this same father, this Don that we were working with and trying to encourage his faint-hearted mind, turns out that he had been having multiple, multiple adulterous affairs. Well, obviously that's devastating. That was devastating to the daughter who was pregnant and said, now my dad, good grief. And it was devastating to his wife. She came actually and stayed with us for a little while. Just trying to overcome, what am I going to do? I can't believe my husband would do this. And so for Don, so in this case, Don is no longer faint-hearted. Don is now unruly. So what do we do with Don? We admonish him. We say, what are you thinking? What are you doing this for? And so you come alongside and you begin to put into his mind who he should be and how he should live, and he knows better. And so we walk with them on this journey that in one, kind, one time Don needed encouragement, on the other time Don needed admonishment because it depended upon the, the, the trespass of the family. And the hope is always for restoration. So you patiently wait. Don's wife divorced him, and they were divorced for two years. And then one day they called me up said, we've been going to therapy, we've been going to counseling, we've been working on it. And we've decided to remarry. And I said, Dave, would you come and officiate at our second wedding? So Joy and I came and we officiated at their wedding. And it was restoration, restoration. And it's not because of anything clever that we did, but simply to understand the, the procedure of Scripture that how do I gently restore someone? And it's, it's to mend the bone. It's to replace the joint out of place because it's how we do it that counts the most. And so we have this journey that we go on 
as we realize that secondly, not only should we restore those who are trespassing, those who are broken, but we care for those who are burdened. Here's this wonderful passage in Galatians 6, 2 through 5. Bear one another's burdens and therefore or thereby fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he has something when he has nothing, he deceives himself. But each one must examine his own work and then he will have reason for boasting in regard to himself alone. And not in regard to one another, for each one will bear his own load. Let me point out something here that I found interesting, and you probably do too if you're a student of the Word. Interesting, as you go through this passage, there's two burdens here. It says, bear one another's burdens. Then the last, for each one will bear his own load. Sometimes that word is translated burden. Bear his own burden. When we want to help people, and make a difference in people's lives. We understand that there are some people who have burdens that they cannot carry on their own. But Scripture also teaches that we have our own burdens and that sometimes you can't come alongside and you have to somehow carry your own load. There's a difference. The word for burden here in the original language that Paul used refers to a burden that no one can carry on their own. It's too heavy. It's too much. The word that is used down here for load or burden is actually a different Greek word, and it means a load that I can easily handle on my own. So distinguishing between the two, you need to understand when the burden is too heavy, I want to help. But I also need to realize there are some times when I don't want to be sort of that codependent person that suddenly is overwhelming someone else because they have a point where they have to kind of carry it on their own. I'll illustrate that in a moment. So just to breaking down this, to make this a little more bite-sized, who should we care for? Those who have burdens that are so much heavier they can never carry it on their own. And then therefore, how do I do that? Or remove any deception, the, the deception of self-sufficiency. Going back to that verse, it says, when there is nothing, he deceives himself, but each one must examine his own work. There is this mindset, and, and I can be one of those guilty parties. I can very much be the guilty party that says, you know, I can handle this on my own. Sort of like, my back pain. <laughs> I, I feel like I'll, I'll manage it. I just sort of have to endure it. I have to persevere through it. There's a self-deception that goes on. And you begin to get to the point where it says, no, Paul says, it's okay that you bear one another's burdens. Don't deceive yourself. Don't boast that you'll manage it yourself. Don't be self-sufficient. But to recognize the need that I have to remove that pride of this I can do it myself. Remember two weeks ago when I talked about my niece, she wouldn't hold her mother's hand crossing the street. And she says, I'll hold my own hands in crossing the street. She says, I'll do it myself. That little three-year-old mindset. Well, I don't want to be a three-year-old mindset in my burdens that I carry. So when do we do it? We do it when the burden is too heavy, and other times we must carry it for ourselves on our own. It's distinguishing between the burden is too much when the burden is just right. Paul, I mean Jesus in Matthew eleven thirty said that my burden is light. The word for burden that Jesus used here was the same word that Paul used for load. It's something you can carry on your own. Jesus gives us burdens that sometimes we just have to carry on our own. As I was speaking last week, I was reminded of a, of a woman um, 
uh, from our past, and her name is Audrey, and she wanted to join our church. And, I, and she said, I'm not sure you want me to join your church. And I said, well, my goodness, we would love to have you join our church. If you've got family, we'd love to have them join as well. If you've got a dog, I'd love for the dog to join the church. We're looking for numbers. We're looking for improvement. We're looking for growth. So we don't care. We just, uh, if it bleeds, it, it joins, you know. And so she says, well, you need to understand that we've got a lot of issues. I said, well, that's okay. We all got issues, you know. And she was, she was right. She's got a lot of issues. So she joined our church, she and her husband. And she had a lot of, she had a lot of burdens. She was one of those that couldn't carry the burden on her own, she and her husband. She and her husband, unfortunately, became foster parents. And they brought in a young child who was in the foster system. And this little child, little girl, young little girl, had been abused by her biological parents. So they said, well, okay, I have to remove there and put her in this home. So they put her in the home with Audrey and her husband. And so, okay, wow, what a rescue job that was. Well, then Audrey's husband abused this little foster girl. It's just devastating. I mean, th those are burdens that you don't carry on your own. And so there's a church family that comes alongside and says, let, let us work with you. Let us help you with this. And that husband of hers who did this terrible thing, he ends up three years in prison. And so she now has, you know, no income. Sort of he's out of the picture. So you come along financially, you come along emotionally, you come along physically, you come along in a lot of ways. You help carry that burden. I remember the last uh, farewell uh, at, uh, this is in Corona, that last weekend, when we were moving up to Lodi, have I told you that? Um, I know, you're sick of that. So we, we leave Corona and move up to Lodi, and the last weekend in Corona at Faith Baptist Church, as it was known in those days, um, they gave me a little farewell, they gave us a farewell, thank you, Dave, kind of a thing. You love those farewells because you really begin to think, wow, they, they did like me. And they think, Maybe I should stay, you know. Uh, but we went through that whole farewell, and she came up, you know, that little reception line that sort of forms and those things. And so there's Audrey. This is like eight years later. So Audrey comes up to me, and she says, do you remember what I said to you when I joined the church? I had to think, oh, yeah, I think so. She said, I said to you, I hope you never regret that I've joined your church. So let me ask you, Dave, have you ever regretted that I joined your church? Because she had burdens galore. And so you take a big gulp. It becomes a test of integrity at that point. I said, Audrey, I've never regretted that you joined our church. It's been hard. You've been through some tough things. We've tried to help you, but we are glad you are here. Because if there's one thing I know, a church is a family where, where burdens are carried together. But now here's the thing. For Audrey, see, so we move on up to Lodi. You know, for Audrey, for Audrey, that load is still there. 
That load is a load where she will always have this burden in her heart that she had a husband who did some of the worst things that anybody should ever even think about doing, let alone doing them. Well, what we could not do is to remove the load. We simply carried the load with her, but this is sort of what Jesus is saying. There are things that we live with that we just have to live with. And to think that somehow we can miraculously take all burdens away, we can't. We can carry the heavy burdens that are too much, but with Audrey and many of you, you carry a lot of burdens, and they're deep in your heart. And we recognize that. But the reality is that God says some burdens you carry with them and some you have to carry on your own because you can never take them all away. And you and I, we all have those things inside. And God says that's part of what I want to help you carry those with Jesus Christ. Paul wrestled with this. He says, for even when we came into Macedonia, our flesh had no rest. But we were afflicted on every side, conflicts without fears within but God who comforts the depressed. This is an encourage, this is the same word for encourage, encourage the faint-hearted, if you will. First Thessalonians 5, 13, 14, just talked about it. Comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted in you as he reported to us your longing, your, your mourning, your zeal for me so that I rejoiced even more. Even the Apostle Paul, the great Apostle Paul says, man, I can't carry these burdens alone. I needed somebody like Titus to come alongside and just kind of help me carry the burden. That's the reality of a church family. And you don't get that in relationships that you've known for two weeks. You get it out of relationships that sometimes come out of five or ten or twenty years where God allows us to work together. So, signs of walking in the Spirit, number one, I'm restoring those who are broken. Number two, I'm caring for those who are burdened. Sign number three, I'm investing in eternal values. Galatians 6, 6 through 8 says, The one who is taught the words is to share all good things with the one who teaches him. Maybe I should repeat that. The one who is taught the word is to share all good things with the one who teaches him. Are you being taught? Yes. Am I teaching? Yes. All right. Point, I'm, I'm giving you jazz because I'm hyped up on ibuprofen. <laughs> Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this will, he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will, will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. So investing in eternal values. Paul, in those days, the idea of paying a pastor was a foreign concept. They didn't do that. The Jews drew up in this Jewish system where they were taxed. There was a temple tax. So you're going to pay for the rabbis. It comes out of a tax. You don't have any choice. They don't pass the plate. And so now we've got a whole new thing called the church, the ecclesia, the called out ones. And so now Paul is saying, look, your obligation is to not be taxed to give, but to give voluntarily to the one who's teaching God's Word. And then he makes the principle out of that, because when you give to the one who teaches, you're, you're investing in something. 
You're investing not in the person, but you're investing in something that is eternal, that is not corrupt and fleshly, but is eternal. The Word of God is eternal. It's life-giving. It's life-breathing. And so he says, I want you to understand all these things. And so, therefore, to break this down, so investing in eternal values, you'll invest in the kingdom message, to invest in the kingdom work and ministry and message of what God has called us into, our mission. We invest in those things. The, the, the New Testament Farsi Scripture that goes to Iran, we invest in the Word of God that it goes. And you believe that. I know you believe that. I thank you for that. So God says, make your investment here. How do we do it? We avoid the deception of the world's values that seem so appealing so that God will not be mocked. I think that's what he's talking about here. He says, the, the one who teaches them, do not be deceived. The word planeo, the word deceived, is the, as I've talked about this Greek word before, planeo, where we get the word planet from. And it goes around the wrong orbit. So God says, I don't want you to go around the wrong orbit. But I was thinking about that. That when I invest in something that's going around the right orbit, here's how it should work. Now, uh, this, this coming week, uh, some of us are going to ride our motorcycles to, to Alliance, Nebraska. It's really kind of a, a, a forgotten, overlooked vacation spot <laughs> in our country. Actually, we're going to Alliance, Nebraska because we want to watch the solar eclipse. So we're going to not look at it directly, but we'll see elements of it. We'll see the residue of darkness. But I was thinking about that. How did scientists know many years ago that there was going to be a solar eclipse on August the 21st in Alliance, Nebraska? How would they know that? Because everything is in order. Things are rotating the way they should. And so because there is an orderliness to how those things rotate, you can be predicting the outcome. I think that taking the same concept of planea where orbit around the wrong thing when I orbit around the right thing, that is investing in eternal values, when I orbit around the right thing, this is how our giving should be. Our giving should be predictable. It should be like the earth rotating around the sun and that scientists are able to calculate at the exact time when that moon will pass between the earth and the sun at the right place so that it actually blocks out the light of the sun. And I was thinking, wow. That God gives us a world in which there's orderliness. So then Paul uses the same concept of planeo, a planet, of this disorderly around the wrong thing. And he says, now just think about it. And I'm just sort of expanding this verse. That if my giving is like the orbiting around the sun, then my giving is faithful, it's consistent, it's regular, it's intentional, it's investing in things that last forever. And Paul is instructing you and me, if you're walking in the Spirit, if you're walking in the Spirit, you're investing in things that are eternal, that will last forever. Because when you sow to the world's values, you reap corruption. When you sow to God's values, you reap to the Spirit and the Spirit's life. It's life-changing. This last week I was reading of, uh, I, I think I get things just about once a month about Johnny Erickson. Remember Johnny Erickson? quadriplegic, broke her neck as a teenager driving into a, diving into a body of water, broke her neck, was a quadriplegic since then, and she's probably in her 60s at this time, has been in a wheelchair the entire time. They just did an interview with her just this last week, and they asked her about her 
uh, zeal for healing early on. She went to people like Catherine Kuhlman to get healed and saw that that just isn't what it's claimed to be. And then she wrote this. There really are more important things in life than walking. There are more important things in life than having the use of your hands. And that is having a heart that is free of the grip of sin and pride and self-centeredness. I'm not saying I've arrived. I've got a long way to go. But I'm on my way. And that's a good feeling. I memorized a quote she wrote from William Law many, many years ago. He said, receive every inward and outward trouble, every disappointment, every trial, every uneasiness, every darkness and desolation with both your hands as a blessed opportunity of dying to self, entering into a fuller fellowship with your Savior, looking at no outward or inward trouble in any other view, reject every other thought about it, and you will find that the day of your distress will become the blessed day of your spiritual prosperity. That is what you call investing your life in things that have eternal value. If she was invested into the physical nature of her body that is corrupted by a broken spine, she would be the most desperate person out there. But because she says, my world is not focused on the material, on the flesh, those things that are corrupted. My heart and my life is invested in that which is eternal. Being freed from the grip of sin, pride, self-sufficiency. And that's where our hearts should go, that we invest with our dollars, with our time, with our mind, our heart, that we invest in what God says counts forever. And we'll never be disappointed by that. And then finally, the fourth of the signs of walking in the Spirit, number one, to restore what is broken. Number two, to care for those who are burdened. Number three, to invest in what is eternal. And then number four, to persevere when weary. Let us not lose heart in doing good. And Paul knew that we will lose heart in doing good. How many times have you prayed for that spouse, for that child, for that parent to come to know Jesus? And you begin to think, God, how many more times do I have to pray that prayer? Don't grow weary in doing good. For in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. So then while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people and especially to those who are of the household of faith. So invest in those things that count forever. And to break it down, we, we know that believers are in danger of losing heart because we don't always reap as quickly as we want to reap. When I'm young and I'm a two-year-old and I'm a three-year-old, if I sow something, I want to reap it right now. I ask for something, I want it now. As an adult, we ask for things. We don't always get it as quickly as we want. We don't reap, and so therefore we have to persevere. That's why I like this little image of a stork swallowing a frog. And the frog says to himself, never give up. This whole idea of persevering, even when things aren't going the way we want them to. I want to read to you one of the great pastors of another era of 1700, and his name is Charles Simeon. He was a pastor of the Trinity Church in Cambridge. He was the Cambridge University guy. And he pastored this church, and nobody wanted him as their pastor. In fact, this is what they did when he was his pastor. The congregation of Holy Trinity didn't want him as their pastor. 
The church members boycotted his services and pew holders locked their pews. In those days, people always sat in the same pew, unlike us, right? We like to move around, don't you? Kind of, you know, compare. No, in those days, they actually had doors on the ends of their pews. So they locked the door that was their pew. We bought that pew, they said. So they locked it so no one else, they weren't going to come and they didn't want anybody else to come. Crazy people they were. To provide seating, Simeon placed benches in the aisles, but the wardens threw them out. So they put benches like down the hallway, aisle way. At times the church leaders locked the doors, preventing him from entering the services. Wouldn't you begin to get the cue? <laughs> My key doesn't work anymore. Rowdy University students protested Simeon's preaching with obscenities and riots, and Simeon was pelted with rotten eggs as he left the church. I've never had that happen to me. The faculty treated him with contempt, and they slandered and ostracized him. And then here's what Simeon wrote. Simeon wrote after a long walk. He says, I can't take it anymore, Lord. I just can't. Finding a stump to sit on, he randomly opened the Bible, hoping for divine confirmation. Instead, his Bible fell open to one lone verse, and this is the verse. They found a man of Cyrene, Simeon by name, and forced him to carry Christ's cross. He was a burden carrier. And Simeon said, Lord, lay it on me. Lay it on me. I will gladly carry your cross. And he persisted. He persevered. For 54 years, Charles Simeon persisted in Trinity Church of Cambridge. And after 54 years of perseverance, 1,100 students were discipled and sent to pastorates and the mission field because of his perseverance. So God gives us stories like that, and he teaches us lessons like this. Therefore, since we have such a great cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every encumbrance, the sin which so easily entangles us, this trespass, these, these hurdles we have to get over that are sinful, that want to take us out. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you, like Paul said, will not grow weary and lose heart. And you have not yet resisted the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. So fix your eyes on Jesus. I want us to be a church that walks in the Spirit where we restore those who are broken. We care for those who are burdened. We invest in what is eternal. And we persevere when the going gets tough because we don't want to grow weary and lose heart because God will give us the harvest in due time. Let me pray. Help us, Father. Help us to persevere. Help us to never grow weary in doing good. Help us to always invest in what is eternal. Help us to always to recognize the burdens of people around us that we would perhaps be the one or in prayerful ways help them carry that burden. And help us, Father, when we see someone broken, when a trespass has been committed, when a failure of sorts has occurred, that God with gentleness and spiritual maturity 
we seek restoration. We seek healing. We seek the mending of a bone, the replacing of a shoulder blade to put back into place for your service. Help us, Father, to carry out the assignments you give to us for every opportunity that comes our way that we will be your servant. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.